Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to episode two of Connecticrats, the CT Dems podcast. My name is Michael Cerulli. I'm your host, and I'm the president of the College Democrats here in Connecticut. And I'm Dave Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. Wow, Dave, we had a really interesting week this week. It was the Republican National Convention, uh, a convention marked by pessimism and some blatant mistruths. And so we decided to counter that with some optimism and some truths. And so we sat down with two outstanding folks. I sat down with former National Teacher of the Year and current Congresswoman for the 5th Congressional District, Representative John Hayes. I spoke to John Michael Parker. He, too, is a uh, former teacher who now runs an arts and education nonprofit. He's running to be the representative for the 101st District in Madison and Durham. In my conversation with Representative Hayes, we discussed her recent vote to defend the U.S. Postal Service, her work towards racial justice in America, and whether or not juggling is a valid campaigning skill. As someone, you know what, I listened to that and I am a juggler. Never occurred to me I could use that skill to help get someone elected. I'm not sure you really can, but Johanna's welcome to try. (laughs) Well, maybe there's a spot for you on that campaign, Dave. So those conversations coming up next on Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. Well, it's great to hear. Um, So I guess we'll jump right into it. I know you're a very busy person. Um, you've been very active down in Washington, D.C. most recently with the Postal Service vote that was taken last Saturday. Um, could you give us an update on that and, and where you stand on that issue? Yes, on Saturday, the Speaker of the House called us back into session to take decisive action on the post office, a bill that is a $25 billion bill to help the post office remain solvent and get delivery back on track with the same timeliness as people are used to and to ensure that no changes could be made uh, to postal operations prior to January of 2021. I supported all of those provisions, had been very active and vocal about the need to stop any obstruction to the post office. Uh, We've had in Congress oversight hearings with Postmaster General DeJoy to ask him to explain the rationale behind some of the changes that have been made. So um, I'm very excited that we voted on it. The bill passed in a bipartisan way with 26 Republicans who supported it as well, because their constituents are also telling them the same things. And I think they recognize the importance of messing with an institution like the post office when we have so many seniors and veterans who receive medications that way. People rely on postal delivery. We are expecting a higher than normal volume of absentee ballots because of the pandemic. And just with people social distancing, we've seen where they've used the postal service uh, with a lot more frequency than they may have even in the past. So like everything else, it it awaits action in the Senate. Yeah, well, um, how confident are you that it will be uh, even taken up for a vote? And uh, do you have any prospects on whether or not the majority leader uh, or any you know members of the Republican caucus will be potentially supportive of these uh, provisions? I have no, um, I have no knowledge of any Senate actions. Um, I, I can't really speak to how confident I am because the majority leader has dismissed the Senate and not called them back into action. Um, but I can't imagine that their constituents are not calling their offices and complaining in the same ways that I heard here in Connecticut. I don't care where you live. The, the number of people who rely on and have contact with the Postal Service 
they have more direct contact with uh, the American household than any other organization. So if the majority leader does not take action, this is something I guess that they'll have to answer for along with the 380 something odd other bills that they haven't taken action on. Right, right. Um, talk to me a bit. You said uh, your Republican colleagues, the ones that voted in favor of, of the bill, um, had been hearing from their uh, constituents about issues they've been having with postal service deliveries. Have you been hearing much from your constituents in the 5th District? Um, and if so, what has that uh, sort of looked and sounded like? Oh, absolutely. We've, we've received thousands of emails, phone calls, um, uh, IQ messages where people are reaching out through the website just to voice their concerns, to share their personal stories of things that they need from the Postal Service, things that have been delayed, um, bills that have been paid late, and just urging me to uh, push for some type of action to restore these services to to what people were traditionally used to. But over the last week, I mean, we just, I, I went through my emails yesterday and we had probably close to 3000 emails on this topic and we were trying to get back to people and respond to them. But over the course of the last um, maybe two weeks, just the volume that that is the top priority of people who are calling into my office where people have serious concerns about not just how postal delivery and service will impact the election, but just their reliance on the post office and people are looking for answers. Right. And, and hopefully, I know you guys have been doing a great job getting those answers. I think all of us, particularly listeners to this podcast, really enjoyed um, watching those oversight hearings. Um, I, I, think, I think the thing for people to recognize is oversight is very important. It is one of the um, essential functions of Congress. And the way our democracy is set up is we have a system of checks and balances. So it really shouldn't matter. People should expect and, in fact, demand that Congress ask questions of, you know, different operations and organizations in our federal government or things that we are legislating about. No one should be, it, it's not appropriate for anyone to operate in a way that's unchecked, uh, no matter who, who's in charge or who the administration is. Uh, so I, I think that the American people should take comfort in the fact or be confident that uh, Congress, or at least this Congress, is going to push for those answers and ask the questions that we're being asked. Uh, you talk there a lot about uh, checks and balances, which I guess sort of segues into my next question, which I was going to ask, which is, you know, I think you have a very unique background as an educator. Um, I think most folks listening to this know that you were the National Teacher of the Year in 2016, taught government and history. You know, how has that informed you know your view of being in Congress? How has that maybe helped you be a better legislator? <laughs> I think uh, it's interesting because one of the the circulating conversations is, does she have the experience to serve in Congress? And I think that uh, everything that I've done, I did in the classroom really translates beautifully to Congress because you really, in order to be an effective teacher, you have to care about other people's families. You know, you work hard for other people's children. You try to help other people succeed. Everything you do is to uplift someone else. So, you know, I, I went to Congress and you try to legislate in the same way. How, how will this legislation affect the people in my community? So it, it really has so, so little to do with you personally and with the people you are advocating for. 
And also as a teacher, I think that you are forced to see kind of the promise and your students' potential before they even realize it. You, you almost have to run down the road and see what's ahead and then prepare them for that. And I think that's, what, that's kind of what legislation does. Uh, in this Congress, I, I was so incredibly frustrated that back in April and May, we weren't having conversations or preparing effectively for school reopenings. It's like, you know, it's going to happen. Why aren't we having that conversation now? Instead of being reactionary to everything, as teachers, you have to plan. There's a tremendous amount of preparation. You have to be flexible. You have to adjust as the information changes. And all of those things, I think, are necessary and important in Congress. If you can't do those things, then you can't legislate effectively. And I think probably the number one thing is just the ability to listen. As a teacher, you spend so much of your time listening to your students, collecting feedback, reflecting on your work, uh, revisiting your curriculum. You have to do that in Congress. There are so many people who are just so dug down in their position and unwilling to change. And as circumstances change, sometimes you have to evolve. Um, we, we've seen people just be forced to support things like paid sick leave or, you know, a plus up on unemployment compensation. Because in the moment that we're in the situation called for us to make those necessary changes. And it's like, these are the types of conversations we should be having every day, not just in the middle of a pandemic. We'll have more with Representative Johanna Hayes after we hear from John Michael Parker, candidate for the State House of Representatives. We are joined by John Michael Parker. He is the candidate for the 101st District for the Connecticut Legislature. That covers uh, parts of Madison and Durham. And uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. So you, uh, this is your second, second go. Yes, it is. I ran for this seat in 2018. Um, I was totally new to politics at that point. Um, and I had uh, wanted to get involved and help serve my town and my community. And I found out that this seat was uncontested in 2016. And so um, it was easy enough to jump in and get started in 2018. I learned a whole lot along the way. I had a great team um, of volunteers and uh, really um, caring uh, experts and uh, guides here in town and throughout the state. And we came super close. Um, we actually was, were one of the races that ended in a recount. So after uh, an additional one week process, I ended up losing by 18 votes. It was 18. I knew it was very close. I knew it was less than 100. I knew it was razor thin, but I didn't realize it was 18. It was. Good golly. What is, what is uh, obviously different about this year? Um, you know, top line, obviously the pandemic causes enormous disruption, uh, but it, both in terms of actual campaigning and in terms of the sort of topics or messages that people are interested in this year, what do you find is different in 2020? Yeah. Well, I think um, really it feels like a lot of um, uh, the, the differences are a result of, of changes that have been in place and, and sort of developing for a while. It feels like, um, in, so I'll start with sort of the, the, the broad um, look at the campaigning in Connecticut um, and then sort of get a little more specific about our race. I think broadly, we certainly see that people are... Um, you know, it's, it's hard to go door to door and to connect with people and, and talk to folks. Um, but I think the trend of, of uh, moving digital certainly has been in place for a while. And now I think it's great that campaigns are ready to um, use a lot of the tools to, to pick up on the opportunities. So 
um, using texting, um, you know, using uh, stronger uh, digital and video content. I mean, this very experience of being on a podcast with you, um, the, the idea that campaigns can easily and sort of readily, readily use um, different re digital resources to connect with folks um, is, is amazing. And I think we're doing more of it this time around and uh, doing a better job of it, which is great. I think from an issue standpoint, um, as you mentioned, obviously the pandemic is the backdrop here, but um, you know, people are, at least in my experience, even more aware of the uh, challenges and risks and, and frankly, the, um, how, uh, how high the stakes are around healthcare and getting access to um, affordable and um, high quality coverage. It's something that I struggled with myself in this last year. Thankfully, I was able to get married and jump onto my wife's employer-run healthcare. Um, but, you know, I, I even found myself really struggling with the open exchange and, and just, you know, realizing how many folks across our state um, uh, really have challenges in, in, in finding uh, the health care that they, they need and deserve. So I think that um, is, feels really heightened. And certainly thinking about schools and, again, in the, with a backdrop of the pandemic and us figuring out how to educate young folks, I feel like it's, it's certainly clearer than ever the disparities that exist between communities, the incredibly difficult job that teachers and educators have. Um, to take care of and, and, and help our students um, develop and grow. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the systems we need to put in place to improve those, um, it just feels like all of those conversations feel more relevant today than they did in 18. The last thing I'll say about this is sort of with the backdrop, um, <clears throat> you know, this is a, a democratic podcast, so it's, it's easy to, um, and, and, and maybe happy to point out just the, the changes we're seeing, even in party affiliation and registration here in our towns. Certainly when we looked to the primaries and saw the um, turnouts of folks um, uh, you know, in the Democratic Party voting nearly twice as, uh, at twice the rate of folks in the Republican Party. But you know, I'm really running and, and believe that this candidate is about so much more um, than partisan politics. Um, and so I think just as we talk with folks really across the spectrum, which is what I did in 2018 and I'm continuing to do, we find that people uh, really wanna see a change in the way that politics um, uh, the way that it happens, the way that we, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we relate, the way that we frame and 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 uh, build issues, and the way that we bring people together to have conversations to actually work on these challenges, and so I think given what's happening across our country, um, and and with our uh, politics in D.C., uh, the point is that much clearer when we bring it down super local for folks about why we need to have representatives and uh, people that are getting involved. Um, that really want to see beyond uh, just a certain part of someone's identity and really find a way to serve everybody in our district. And then as we look out, everyone across our state. Um, your professional background, you're the executive director of a nonprofit. Um, so talk a little bit about the nonprofit and how the work there or your professional experience may inform how you'll approach things as a legislator. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm the executive director of Arts for Learning Connecticut which is the largest provider of arts and education programming in the state. So what that means is we have um, a bunch of artists that we work with, teaching artists that go into classrooms and partner with teachers and educators and help um, inspire and expand the learning of students. So we find a way to bring creativity, often cultural connections, um, right into classrooms to help bring learning to life for young people. Um, I've been in education for my whole career, so I started working as a fourth grade teacher, and then I helped start um, and uh, work with a nonprofit that was based out of New York City doing social emotional learning work for high school students. Um, so, you know, I've, I've gotten to see the educational systems in 
urban areas, sort of now moving back and um, having been in Connecticut and doing that work for a few years. And I really, um, you know, am, am, am interested to, to seeing on the other side uh, from legislation and from policy standpoints, how can we really, um, you know, uh, in some ways level the playing field so that folks have the same opportunities that people might have had in, in towns like mine in, in Madison and Durham. Um, going to schools like uh, Hand and Coggenshaw and the other great public schools we have here. Um, how do we find a way to share some of what's working? Um, and then also, how do we really rethink the way that uh, we're setting up teachers and educators to succeed? Um, because they're, uh, you know, we, we in Connecticut, we still have the highest, um, some of the highest um, income inequality, which is directly related to, I think, our achievement gap in the way that so many students in our, our schools are not being prepared to really succeed. So anyways, my experience in the classroom and then now at an organizational level and now specifically at a statewide Connecticut organization um, really helps me see that um, it's so different in so many different parts of our state and we really have to find a way to make policies that, um, that actually uh, bring folks together and, and work for larger groups of people. Now, are you, is your uh, work able to continue? Because every school is doing things quite differently. Does it have to be in-person learning the way, the way you're organization is set up or, or did you did they function well through the period from March to June last year how is that going that's a great question you know it's been a tough 2020 um, so a lot of work shut down pretty quickly when um, the pandemic uh, started spreading through uh, our communities um, but we quickly started transitioning to virtual work and we helped coach and prepare our artists to offer their work online and then we yeah. found a way to connect with schools to share you know what were the opportunities that were actually available so we've done significant work throughout the summer um, virtually. A lot of it is through Zoom. Sometimes we're using Google and Google Classroom and those tools. Um, we're seeing you know, right up front the challenges, the equity issues related to um, digital and virtual learning. So um, student enrollment numbers in uh, places like New Britain, where we usually do a big summer programming, were way down this summer, despite all of the efforts to try to get you know, iPads and you know, Chromebooks and stuff into kids' hands. There's just so many different challenges we have to think about. Um, but we have responded and, and pivoted and been able to do most of our work virtually. Um, and we were sort of getting along ready there for the school years to start. And then last week, um, I don't know if, if, if folks even uh, had seen this across the state, but a tornado touched down right here in Hamden, Connecticut. And our office, um, being at the corner of our office building, was hit pretty bad. So uh, the roof was pulled off. Um, most of the stuff in our office was destroyed. And um, over the weekend, we moved into a new office building. So um, we just, uh, everyone is, is safe and healthy, thank God, and, and uh, we're going to be able to keep moving forward. But just when we thought we had one thing figured out, another challenge comes up. So that seems to be the theme of the year. And uh, we're incredibly lucky to be in a strong position. And I feel this personally to be able to respond to these challenges and to keep moving forward. And so um, it, it gives me all, all the more awareness of um, uh, the systems that are in place and that we need to put in place to make sure everyone can, can respond to challenges quite so well. It's like a it's like a metaphor, a microcosm of 2020 right there. Just like as soon as you think it's going better, uh, you know, from from my point of view, and I suspect from yours, uh, 2020 has an opportunity to redeem itself. It, that opportunity comes on November 3rd, and uh, we're hoping that the United States redeems itself in a global way, but also here in Connecticut. We we want to uh, uh, see what we can do to uh, you know add more seats to the legislature, and, and your seat is one of those that can flip. Um, you can find John Michael Parker all across social media and on the web at JMP4CT. That's the numeral four, right? That's uh, going to be your Twitter, 
handle, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and uh, the URL as well. So keeping it very easy for people to find you. And uh, if you get volunteers, what are they doing? We are making a lot of phone calls. Um, so that's the easiest thing to plug into from wherever you are. Um, um, so we'd be happy to, to make that happen. We're also uh, sending postcards. Uh, we'll be dropping off lawn signs. Folks from here in my community can write letters to the editor, uh, to our newspapers. Um, uh, but we, we have, we're lucky to have a variety of, of talented folks working on a campaign. So um, we'd be happy to hear from, from people that want to get interested. That's absolutely right. And volunteers uh, win campaigns. You know, candidates get the credit, but ultimately it's the volunteers who do the heavy lift. So please reach out to John Michael Parker or the candidates in your area. You can find all of them listed on the Connecticut Dems website. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to someone each week. John Michael Parker, thank you for joining us here. Thank you, David. We now return to the second half of Michael Cerulli's interview with Representative Johanna Hayes. How have um, you been taking part in the conversation around school reopenings? I know you said we should have been thinking about this stuff a long time ago. I think I would definitely agree with that. Um, have you, has your perspective uh, and your background um, sort of given you a different view or do you have um, you know, any particular thoughts on how we should be going about the reopening strategies, particularly here in Connecticut, but I guess also nationwide? Well, m my position on that has not changed. I said from the very beginning, that I didn't think that going back full-time in person was the right thing to do. I said that as far back as May when schools were closing and, there, and, and in June when it was first floated that Connecticut schools in particular would go back because the curve had flattened. I recognize that we don't know enough about the way this virus goes through children. I've spent enough time in a public school building to know that th things like air quality and ventilation and social distancing would be a challenge. I knew that some of our most vulnerable communities that were hit the hardest by COVID would not be able to afford to implement many of the changes that were being asked, you know, as far as cleaning and sanitation. We have many elementary schools that don't even have a full-time nurse or one or two custodians are responsible for the entire building. So there were so many things that I was considering because I've been on the other side of those walls and I know what happens inside of a school building. And as I considered them, I knew that as a parent, as an educator, as a member of Congress, that we weren't adequately prepared. And without resources, I wasn't sure how we would get there. And I think most recently, as we've seen outbreaks, you know, in Danbury was a perfect example. Uh, on college campuses, we see people, we have not adopted a national strategy. There is not a national acceptance of wearing masks and what works. And those are the types of things that teachers would have to contend with from students when we went back. So I have always been a proponent of a slow reopening where we, we take things maybe a couple weeks at a time, see what we're capable of, bring kids back slowly, make sure that we have the resources, make sure that districts aren't left to figure this out on their own. And I haven't seen that come together with fidelity. So I, my position has not changed much on that issue. Um, I have been parts of many conversations, roundtables. We have caucus calls. We're, we've had over 50 caucus calls since um, Congress went to teleworking for the most part back in March. And multiple calls, multiple hearings on my committee on education and labor about ways that we can help schools. In the HEROES Act, I, I think we had $50 billion 
for school reopenings to make sure that districts were equipped. We had a hundred and I believe it's 105 billion in the uh, Moving Forward Act that would address school infrastructure and some of these air quality issues. But again, these things are still awaiting movement on the floor of the Senate. So without resources, I don't know how any district, I mean, there are some districts that are, are wealthier and have the resources and could adjust fairly well. But we saw that back in April where some districts were up and running with digital equipment and other districts, even when we closed in June, they still weren't up and running. So I just don't know. That would just further exacerbate the disparity gaps and kids who are in vulnerable households and vulnerable communities that were already hit the hardest by COVID. You know, minority communities will be hit even harder when kids go back and begin to spend all of this time in these communal settings. Right, right. It seems like all the crises we're facing right now are sort of intertwined and interconnected, um, which I guess, you know, that sort of plays into this conversation about racial justice. I, you know, I thought, um, you know, your your piece in the Hartford Current about um, the racial injustices being brought to the surface here in this country was, I, I think, one of the best observations that I'd read on. It was like one of those articles that I read and I sort of sent everyone that I knew because I was like, this is pretty much what I think uh, needs to be listened to right now. So, um, I guess so. That'll be a good segue into this topic. Um, uh, how are you working in Congress? I know we, you know, you guys passed the Justice and Policing Act, um, which you know again is one of those things that's piling up on Mitch McConnell's desk. Um, how have you been working in Congress on these racial justice issues, particularly as it relates to you know health injustices and policing and and so many other interconnected issues? And and do, do you see you know your job right now really as attacking one thing, which is that inequality? and just really coming at it from different angles? Or do you see these issues as things that need to be, you know, attacked on their own front? I think, you know, I've just in the conversations I've had with you know, other members, um, there, there's a, a range of views on how wide and how uh, in-depth the legislation needs to be moving forward. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as someone who has, I think, one of the most unique perspectives uh, on this. First of all, thank you for <laughs> your critique of my op-ed. It was I think what's different for me is that these are not my observations. These are my lived experiences. So to be able to contribute that to the overall legislation, I think has definitely been just an empowering experience for me. I think right now, I think it's even more critically important because I, I really had to step back and think, you know, Connecticut Democrats have never had the voice of an African-American as a federal legislator, ever. So while we have amazing legislators, incredibly progressive legislators in this state, there is a perspective that has been missing. And right now, while this conversation is at the forefront on, of the national stage, I can offer provide something very unique to my delegation. Also, our state really has a problem of resegregating. We have very segregated communities. Um, I see that in my district where we have very, you know, thick concentrations of minority communities and very, very white communities. So your experiences in the state of Connecticut really vary depending on where you live or, you know, the community that you're in. So the mm -hmm. fact that all of these things are happening on the national stage. I think we are uniquely positioned because 
we have all of those perspectives, all of that coming together. We have a delegation that works together where I can say, I need for you guys to appreciate this experience or that this is what this means. And, you know, that it's always well received. We always work together. And then that becomes a part of the much larger conversation in Congress. I think with this being the most diverse Congress in history, well, the Democratic Congress is um, <laughs> majority women, minorities, we have LGBTQ representatives, Native American representatives. It is a very diverse caucus. So we are having conversations that speak to everyone. As far as legislation goes, I don't think that we can focus on any one thing. All of these things are interconnected and you can't deal with one without dealing with the other. When we were talking about closing schools back in March, we couldn't do that without thinking about food security. How will these kids eat? We couldn't think about that without thinking about mental health services because so many kids receive services at school. So you really can't pull these things apart. Right now, when we passed the HEROES Act, that COVID legislation, people say, well, what does this have to do with COVID? We, as we were hearing from constituents, this wasn't just a healthcare crisis. It was an economic crisis. It was a food security crisis. It was a mental health crisis. People were talking about all of the ways, you know, their community was affected as a result of this pandemic. We heard from theaters and libraries. We heard from restaurants. We heard, and it was like, it was almost like whack-a-mole. You didn't even realize how many people were affected by the fact that this virus was spreading so rampantly. So you couldn't just deal with one thing, which is why when the Senate went back in and they came up with some version of what they call the HEALS Act, it addressed unemployment. You know, there was some money for school reopening, but it's like, what about all of the other things? You know, eviction, the moratorium on eviction, the election. People say, what does that have to do with COVID? Because of this pandemic, people are at risk and their safety is at play when they go to exercise their right to vote. So it, it almost was like tentacles went out where we started to begin to understand. And part of that reason for that is because the fabric of our caucus is so rich and people came with so from so many communities with so many backgrounds. So internally, we were having all of these robust discussions about how different people were affected. And I think that we put forth a piece of legislation that addressed just about every concern that we had heard. So I don't think you can do one or the other or prioritize just one thing. You know, you can't talk about unemployment or reopening the economy if people are not healthy and we're not testing and tracing. And, and we learned that very on, very early on. We invested $50 billion in the airline industry, and they're still struggling because people are not healthy and therefore are not flying. So all of these things are interconnected. Exactly, exactly. And I think you brought up a great point in terms of the importance of representation and diversity. We had William Tong on the show last week, and him and I, who are both uh, Asian American, were talking about uh, the, the importance of that. And I think, uh, you know, Connecticut Democrats and Democrats around the country are very proud and very, very uh, lucky to see that our next vice president is going to be, and I, I use that phrase with a lot of certainty because we are going to be working hard to elect Kamala Harris <laughs> as our next vice president. And I know, <laughs> I know that she was one of your most high profile endorsers. You endorsed her. And I, I saw the, the great tweet that you put out when it was announced that she's going to be our next vice president. Um, I'm wondering <laughs> if I could hear some reactions on that. 
um, and, and how important you think uh, the selection of Kamala Harris is as our next vice president? Oh, I was thrilled to hear that she was uh, selected as the nominee. I, I didn't want to get too overconfident uh, because there were some tremendous, tremendous choices and any one of them would have been amazing. But I was, you know, really upfront about it in a very biased way that I, I thought she would be a great pick. I didn't realize how emotional I would be at the moment where she was accepting the nomination. Uh, you kind of think of it as a compulsory exercise until it's happening. And there have been very few political moments where I just have felt re-energized and reinvigorated and just a sense of hope, hopefulness that we were moving in the right direction. And I, I don't think I had fully conceptualized the impact that it would have on me that a black woman accepted the nomination for vice president of the United States. I mean, we see countries all over the world that have women in leadership um, just all over. Uh, I know that women lead differently. Uh, the fact that I consider her a friend was very important to me, but I just think in a historical context, uh, with everything that's going on and us being in such tumultuous times, I think that her nomination shows that we're still moving forward and in the right direction. And even though things feel, people feel depleted and there's a lot going on and there's death and there's sickness, I think there's also um, just this idea of hope where people are still willing to make bold choices and work for them and, you know, put forth a nominee. And I, and I think Part of that is we are in a time where people realize we have to get it right right now. We can't wait. Uh, I see that even as I'm watching the, the last week when I watched the Democratic Convention, a lot of the things that we may have done in an intermittent way, people are saying, actually, we need to start working on these things now. We've, we've waited too long. We've wasted too much time. We can't just put the lid back on of all of these inequities and disparities that have been revealed as a result of COVID. We have to get to work closing those gaps and fixing those things. I want to ask sort of as we begin to draw to a close here, we talked earlier about how you were a high school uh, history and government teacher, and we talked about your experience in Congress. Um, so let me give you a hypothetical. Uh, if you were to find yourself tomorrow back in a, in a high school classroom teaching a U.S. government course with you know high school students in front of you, uh, what would change about how you might teach that course, given the experience you've had in Congress? Um, are there things you would tell them differently about, you know, how to put their hands in the levers of power and how to communicate with their government? Or, or do you think, um, you know, it's pretty much, you know, what we all learned in AP history about or AP Gov about, you know, um, bill goes up to the House, then to the Senate, then to the White House. Um, what, what do you think has changed about your perspective on how you might teach someone about how our government works? Nothing would change. <laughs> My time in Congress has just confirmed for me that I was doing it right for 15 years. <laughs> I mean, you start every course with we the people. And I always stress to, to students that we have a participatory democracy, that we have a system of checks and balances. We have a system by which the people elect their representatives and have the power to remove representatives. And all of that is true. And I would by the time kids got to the end of my course, I hope they understood, but all of this is incumbent upon you doing your part of you being civically engaged, of you being active, of you holding leaders accountable. 
And my time in Congress has just reaffirmed that for me. This idea that uh, you, you elect someone and you send them and it's their job to change, fix the system or, or you know, change all these things. It really, I, I think the largest, we talk about political parties, I think the largest group is just the, the average citizenry. And that's what I used to tell my students. And that has not changed. And the other thing I would tell them is that we have a system by which if you don't like it, there's a way that the people can change it, no matter what it is. Um, And that just has been so ever present to me because many of the things that are happening, the fact that, again, we have close to 400 bills that the Senate won't even hear. Our democracy should not work like that. The bill should be, I mean, we have a system where they move in the House, a bill starts in the House, it goes to the Senate, you put it on the floor, the Senate either votes it up or votes it down. They vote it down, you send it back, and then it goes to the president. But this idea that we have a Senate majority leader who is saying, I will not put a bill on the floor unless I have assurance that the president will sign it, that's not how it's supposed to work. The Senate is also supposed to be a check on the president. And we're not seeing that. And just like I would have told my students then, I tell the people in my community and my constituents now, but the people have the ability to change that. So if people are not happy with the work of any of their representatives, the time to make their voices known and their opinions known is in November on election day. So I think I would have a lot more real life experiences for them but the general message would not change. And that would be, it is incumbent upon you to do your part. So as we approach uh, November and many uh, folks, especially many of my peers, uh, college age and high school age uh, voters are looking to do their part. Uh, how can they get involved with your campaign? How could they help uh, send you back to Washington for another term of representing uh, the fifth district of Connecticut? Oh, I have. So I have a website, johannahayes.com, and I have a whole section of how to get involved. And I think this is a unique way for especially young people, because in this pandemic, when campaigns are are being hindered, I, I see it as a tremendous opportunity to really try to do things in a different way. One of the things that I experienced in 2018 was there was this one way to campaign, a very traditional way. It was very difficult to break outside of the norms and outside of the boxes of what people were used to doing. And my original campaign was fueled by young people. And we had some amazing energy and creative ideas and things that were very different. And it worked. And it was hard to convince people that this wasn't lightning in a bottle, that you can try different things. We can explore different options. We can be creative with the way we engage people. And I know this because it worked. So now you see all of these people who are forced to do things differently. Campaigns aren't just canvassing and phone banking. People are having to be a lot more creative about what that looks like. So we have so many options. We're doing lawn parties. We're doing postcarding. We're doing virtual phone banks. We're doing Zoom roundtables and events, hosting meetings, and also just looking for fresh ideas. So. This is a place, my campaign, just like it was before, is a place where when people show up, I say, tell me what you're good at and we'll figure out how to make that work on this campaign. I don't know. I don't care if you're a juggler. We'll have a campaign juggler. <laughs> so so 
listen, we need all the help we can get to get our message out. Well, that's, that's outstanding. So if you are a juggler <laughs> listening to this, I think the message there is to go to johannahayes.com uh, and let them know that you're ready to help out. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, thank you so much uh, for being on here today, Congresswoman. Um, I'm not thank a constituent you. of yours, but uh, I am so glad that you're representing our state in Washington. I'm sure you know somebody that knows somebody, and that's how it starts. <laughs> yes, yes. And I do want to give a shout out because I, I promised I'd give him a shout out on here to Farian, who is the head of uh, the students ah, for Johanna you Hayes. you know somebody who knows somebody. <laughs> yes, he's actually part of the reason I have this interview right now. So I want to thank him. I want to thank you again and, and your whole team for the work you're doing. I want to reiterate to the listeners, johannes.com is where you can go to sign up to volunteer. Um, and thank you so much for being with us today, Congresswoman. And we wish you the best of luck as we move towards November. Thank you. Thanks so much. You take care. Wow, Dave, those are really great conversations with Johanna and John Michael Parker. Folks, we are nine weeks out from Election Day, meaning it is crunch time. I said it last week. I'll say it again every week until Election Day. It's really crunch time. Dave, tell them how they can get involved. Volunteers win elections. We talked about that with John Michael Parker, and it's true in every single race in this state and every single race across the country. Um, you know, you can do your research, see who you like, support a Senate candidate somewhere in the United States. But here in Connecticut, we need volunteers. You can volunteer uh, through our website at ctdems.org, any of the candidate websites that you can find, and you'll find those all listed again at ctdems.org. It's your help that's going to help win these elections in our state and across the country. Thank you, Dave. And thank you to Jonathan Richter for his help with production. Thank you to Team Johanna Hayes for their help setting that meeting up. And we will see you next week on Connecticut's The CT Democrats Podcast. Mm-hmm.